The teaching that we looked at from Peter last week is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in mercy and the grace that we've received in Christ. It's founded in a love that God has for us. And part of the reason Peter starts there is to remind the church of the gospel to really prevent us from forgetting it for two primary purposes. The first purpose is that we would grow in maturity. We need to know the gospel so that we would grow in maturity. And the second reason we need to remember the truths of the gospel is that we would not be persuaded by false teaching, which is the context here of 2 Peter. In our text today, Peter will address the first of these said aims. That we must remember the truth of Christ so that we would spiritually grow in maturity. Now, in this passage today, we're going to look at three aspects of Christian maturity, of Christian uh, growth. The first aspect is that we, all of us who have received the righteousness of Christ and who have placed our trust in Christ, are called to grow into maturity in Christ. Uh, the second aspect of Christian maturity is we are going to look at these descriptions of Christ's character, God's character, uh, that we apply to our own lives as we consider the gospel of grace and God's own character himself. And then finally, we're going to see what the fruit is that bears when we consider the gospel and apply the gospel to our lives. What does that do for us? Uh, we're going to see that it guards us from certain things and preserves us for other things. And so that is kind of the direction that we are going to be heading in the text today. Uh, the main idea of the passage is quite simple. Uh, rooted in the gospel last week, because of the grace of Christ, we confirm our calling and election by diligently growing in Christ's character. So that's where we're heading. So we're going to look at these three aspects of Christian maturity today, and we're going to unpack quite a bit about the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility in our text today. First as Christians, it's really important uh, as you sit there today to accept the fact that God has called you to a life of maturity. Uh, this is the reason he has given you faith. This is the reason he has provided you Christ's righteousness, so that you will grow in Christ's likeness. He has called us to his glory and his excellence. That's what it says in verse 3 of last week. To live his character out for the world to see. And he wants us to confirm our calling by being dedicated to growing in his likeness. So look at that verse phrase there. Uh, which is where we get uh, our first point, accept the call to Christian maturity. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then go down with me actually in verse 10. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Now that first phrase there, for this reason, is this. Because you have been made righteous by God through faith. Because you have received everything in your life required for godliness, 
because he has called you to his own glory and excellence, because of these things, he is rooting this command in those promises. And that's where we get, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. With all God has done and is doing, church, we are to make every effort to supplement our faith. This is a command to be active and not passive about our Christian maturity. And I want us to make sure we have this, this understanding before we move forward. There's a huge difference between making every effort and earning your salvation. That is not what he's saying here in the text. He's saying making every effort, which means try your very hardest to supplement your faith, to exhaust yourself in Christ-likeness. Now, this phrase forces us to look at this work as active and not passive. And I hope that truth kind of resonates deep in your heart today, that there is a responsibility that Christians have. We're to be diligent in pursuing godliness in all areas, even areas that we are not godly in, especially those areas. We're to be active in this. And, and Peter's going to call for a cooperation uh, with the grace of God and then our responsibility. Uh, but before we move forward, I think there's two primary traps uh, that we can fall into if we're not careful thinking about making every effort uh, to steward our faith. Uh, the first trap that I want us to consider is thinking that the Christian growth happens uh, solely by God and that we have nothing to do with it. Uh, it's th living with that mindset, I'm just going to let go and I'm going to let God do everything, almost like in a way of osmosis, that by not partaking in the grace of Christ, I will be made like Christ. Well, this takes a passive approach, and there's, there's a lot of danger in there. This is the mindset that Voltaire, the French skeptic, has who said, God will forgive, that's his job. Therefore, I can live any way that I want to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer considered this cheap grace. It's the kind of view of the gospel that lacks discipleship. The view that does not consider obeying God's commands. Uh, uh, doesn't consider repenting of sin. It has a, a very sloppy view and an incomplete view and a dangerous view of the cross. Uh, there's no desire to fight sin. There's no active faith and dependence on God and his spirit. This view promotes that since all counts are settled before the living God, therefore all can be had for nothing. And that's simply uh, not the case here if Peter is calling us by the spirit of God to make every effort. This view of the gospel keeps people from, uh, this, this, this view of the gospel allows people to drown in their sin because people aren't trusting in the hope that they have in the gospel that truly changes people. The other side of the trap is the opposite, that you can do everything in your own power to grow in godliness. You are ruled by your piety, uh, by your discipline, by the knowledge that you have but your life is absent from the power of God and his grace working through the spirit to make you into something different. Uh, if we're not careful, we can see this pop up in places even like our D group. We're, we're 
telling one another as, as sin is confessed, hey, stop doing that, or how are you doing in this? And we take those matters into our own hand without considering the grace of God itself. Uh, have you looked at this or have you said this rather than have you held Christ this week, which is the motivation for you to change the way you speak or change the things that you look at? These things are before us, and they're two things that we need to be very mindful of so that we don't fall into those snares. To be honest with you, my snare is the latter. It's to do things my own way, uh, to, to think of my own piety, my own knowledge, my own strength to get things uh, done rightly. Uh, when Lauren and I have conflict, and sometimes Lauren and I have conflict, 98% of the time it's because of me, uh, there is a difference that she uh, can see when we're in a tiff and I simply say, hey, I'm sorry, uh, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that, uh, will you forgive me? And I'm just trying to make things right rather than the times where I actually go back to the gospel of Christ, remember the grace that I've received in Jesus, moved by the grace that's led me to a place to want to repent to cling to his righteousness, to serve my wife with grace and mercy, she can see the difference when I, when I go to the cross and say, honey, will you forgive me for sinning against you? That's the difference between holding on in your flesh versus trusting in the spirit. But Peter says here that there is a better way. When he says make every effort, it's because his divine power has granted to us everything that pertains to life in, in godliness, the, the, the divine power of God is not detached from Peter's mind when he says, beloved, make every effort. Make every effort because his promises are better than any deceitful fruit that is offered to you in this life. Rest on the supplies of grace. Not cheap grace, not no grace, but abundant, powerful, true grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that reminds you of your stance before a holy God because of his righteousness. So make every effort. Douglas Moo, uh, a theologian, says it this way, we must insist that God by his spirit makes us holy, and it is we who do the job of becoming holy. And we're going to talk more about what that looks like fleshed out a little bit. So we grow in the intimate knowledge of Christ in the gospel that relational knowledge that we talked about last week. And the more we do, the more we will grow in Christ's likeness. Are you struggling today with your spiritual growth? Are you struggling to, to, to just move one tick in godliness? It might be because you have engaged these things um, with an attitude of letting go and just trusting that God is going to make it better. Like I said, through osmosis, or perhaps you're doing it in the strength of your own flesh and you're, you're continuing to go back to, to the sins that so easily entangled you because you are not walking in the grace of the Lord. Beloved, there is no growth in Christian maturity without obedience. However, there can be no progress apart from the obedience that is supplied by God's grace and by God's power. So we must recognize a full dependency upon God who has given us all these things for life and godliness. And this is our call to recognize today. We are called to Christian maturity that is fueled 
by God's grace every day. Now, secondly, look how Peter describes Christian maturity. It's through Christian character. So by growing in these things is how we partake in the divine nature, like we talked about last week. So God's holy character is what drives our holiness and our goodness. So he's going to kind of lay out for us these godly characteristics that we can partake in as we grow in the divine nature. Look with me there in verse 5, which drives our second point, which is to strive for the character of Christian maturity. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, and then we'll get to that in our third point, but I say this because I want us to see there's two crucial words here in verses 5 through 7. The first word is supplement, supplement your faith, and the second is increasing. So we are to supplement our faith that we would increase in these godly characteristics. What does it mean, verse 8, to supplement, or excuse me, verse 5, to supplement your faith? Well, supplementing your faith simply means this. That little Greek word for supplement is to provide or add at one's own expense to something. We have a responsibility to add to the faith that God has given us. This word in the Greek describes a wealthy benefactor in ancient times who would fund Greek plays as they would happen in society. He would want the society to enjoy a play, and so by himself, he would supplement and fund uh, those plays for all to enjoy. That's the word that Peter uh, uses here. It's the same word provider in verse 11, that God provides for us an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So we have this faith, which is of equal standing to the apostles that we talked about last week. And here we see we are to make every effort to generously and liberally give to your own faith. We're to make this effort as a response to God's promises to us. These very great promises that we talked about last week. He's describing here, beloved, an attitude that we are to have when it comes to our spiritual growth. We are to make an investment, bend every effort Make exhaustive provision for your faith since God has supplied everything for you to be able to do that. He has given us everything for this. He, he is, as I've said, he's describing a cooperation. And we'll discuss the, uh, the tension of God's sovereignty and our responsibility more in, ver, uh, in point three. But I, I want us to look at this list of virtues. The first list, uh, excuse me, the first virtue listed there is faith. Now, faith is the greatest virtue in one sense because it's rooted in the work of Christ. It's trusting that Christ and Christ alone is able to guard us by his power, as 1 Peter talks about. It's trusting these things. And so uh, what do you do to build your faith with? That's what he's saying here in the text, that little preposition. Will you build your faith with these qualities that he is about to lay out? Now, some... Scholars believe that these qualities build on each other. Others uh, simply refer to them as a list of things that we are to grow in. 
Uh, to be honest with you, I think Peter is building out a logical argument about how these virtues actually build on one another. Each virtue, virtue precedes uh, the other. So with that faith, look what he first says. You grow, you supplement with virtue. Virtue is moral excellence, is goodness. Uh, if Christ is the perfect holy one, the set-apart one, we make every effort to imitate him, for this is what we have been called to. You have been set apart, called to his glory and his excellence. Therefore, you live out his characteristics in this life so people would know who God is living through us. This requires us to realign our ethic. Uh, when you consider... Uh, his way is the excellent way rather than your way. This is the first step to applying virtue to your life. Many people confess Christ with their mouth. If I could just pastor us here for a second. But they never take the step of realigning their lives to fit the mold of what Christ finds as excellent. And this is a great sin of many people. And yes, uh, remember that God is gracious. God is steadfast in his love towards us. God is patient with us. In fact, Peter's going to say the very same thing in chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But he is calling us to live a life of excellence. It's as if Peter is saying, I want you to be like Christ. So start living and mimicking your life. To do that. And this is the very opposite thing of what the false teachers were doing. They were turning their back on the holy commands, as it says in chapter 2. Despite talking about their faith, uh, talking about how they're chosen by God, they were turning their back on the holy commands. Maybe you haven't turned your back on the holy commands, but perhaps you're apathetic to living the godly life. And I would say the outcome is no different. God expects us to live godly lives because he has empowered us to live godly lives. And with virtue, uh, he wants us to grow then in knowledge. Now, knowledge is that word gnosko. It's a little bit different than the word knowledge that we talked about last week. This is growing in an understanding of who Christ is, who God is, what God's will is, uh, learning more information about him. That means we learn about God and then we apply who God is to our lives. This is, this is growing us and discerning what, what God is like and, and what pleases him, uh, what brings glory to him. Grow in your understanding of the scriptures, beloved. Grow in God's will, and you will grow in living out the truths of God. When you are tethered, married to Christ and who he is, it is impossible for someone not to grow. It is impossible for someone not to, to bear fruit and to increase in these things uh, in every aspect of your life. I, I fear sometimes we grow bored of Christ, thinking that we have had all we've needed of him. And so we're grateful for him. We, we remember that he saved us, 
but we have grown tired of growing in the knowledge of Christ. I love what Samuel Rutherford said, a great Puritan. Listen to what he says and let this sink into your heart. There is much in our Lord's pantry that will satisfy his children, much wine in his cellar that will quench all their thirst. Hunger for him until he fills you. Every day we see some new thing in Christ. His love has neither brim nor bottom. There are infinite plies in his love that the saint will never be able to unfold. There are curtains to be drawn back in Christ that we have never seen. There are new foldings of his love in him. Dig deep, beloved. Sweat labor and take pains for him and set as by as much time in the day for him as you can and he will be one with labor. Be married to Christ and the knowledge that is profoundly reassuring of our salvation and the grace that we have received in his name. And look how this knowledge then drives self-control. If we learn God's ways, then we're expected to live according to God's knowledge or the knowledge that he has provided us. And this impacts uh, the way we live our life, how we speak to one another, how we respond, our temperaments, uh, what we're trusting in, uh, how, uh, how much time are you viewing in entertainment because you're putting your hope in entertainment? Uh, how are you living out your appetites? Self-control, which is something that is constantly brought up in Peter and Paul's writings, is putting your passions under control. And, and that's something that the false teachers in chapter 3, verse 3, are not doing. They're living according to their own desires. And he's saying, no, be steadfast. And this is what makes us distinctly Christian, because this is only possible when the Holy Spirit enables us to do this. We see this in Galatians 5. We put to death the deeds of the body through the spirit. We, we, we bear fruit through the spirit. And this helps us in our Christian living. This is a part of the good news. We've been purchased uh, not just for the forgiveness of sins, but also in growing in righteousness and, and, and in good works. So how are you in your relationship with food, beloved? What does your weekly screen time report tell you about your self-control? How are you responding when your kids are screaming or when things are frustrating? The knowledge of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, helps us be self-controlled. But we're not just to be uh, self-controlled. Look, we're also to be steadfast, building on our self-control. That means we are to endure. That means we are to bear, even in difficulty. Now, even in the flesh, we can be self-controlled for a few days, but when we're talking about steadfastness, that means we need to keep trusting in the, in the God who endures and bears with us, who is able to deliver us from trials. We need to continue walking with Christ in a very intimate way so as to prove to be steadfast. And we will bear up under affliction. Uh, our heart will be filled with hope when we're going through persecution because of Christ and this makes us look very different than the rest of the world and the way the world handles uh, these things because we actually have eternal hope. We have eternal hope in the gospel. 
and then we build up into godliness. And that's the same word that's, that we're called to in verse 3 that we preached about last week. And as one theologian says, godliness is the very practical awareness of God in every aspect of life. So as we believe God and, and we crucify the flesh and we walk with God, we will then begin to walk in godliness towards one another and the outside world. And this is what we are called to every single one of us as Christians. And then that leads us to brotherly affection, a Greek word, Philadelphia, referring to affection that we have for, towards one another. So when we're growing in godliness, we actually begin to consider our brother and sister over our own self. And, and when Christ calls us to him, he demands a new loyalty amongst his people. Do you remember what Jesus himself said in, in Mark chapter 3? He says, these are my brothers and my sisters. Where is my mother? My mother is here. This is the way that Jesus views those who have placed their faith in him, the church. And we're called to be the very same, to build each other up in this, to grow in this, to, uh, to dedicate our lives to this. And then finally, brotherly affection then leads to the greatest virtue, which is love, agape. It's the final virtue, the apex of this list. Love leads to compassion, care, service, sacrifice, it is the aim of Paul's charge as he's writing all the beautiful scriptures to Timothy. In 1 Timothy, he says, all of this is driven by love. It's very possible, as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, that we can have knowledge without love. We can have understanding in all things, but if we don't have love, we don't have anything. And so we're to, to, to put this on, to grow in these things. This is the highest Christian characteristic that there is. We've said it many times because the scriptures say it many times. In John 13, Jesus says that the world will know that you're my disciples based on how you love one another. Love, when we put it on, binds all of us together in harmony. That's what it says in Colossians 3. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's what it says, remember, if you remember back in 1 Peter chapter 4. So ask yourself in any and every situation... As you're, as you're walking with Christ, as you're growing in these things, what does love look like in this situation? Ask yourself that question when you go to lunch today or when you have a conversation out here in the courtyard. What does love look like? Because this is what Peter is driving us to. He's taking us from faith to love. This is the process. He's laying this forward so that Christians can be mature in the faith. So Peter wants a church that's full of mature Christians. That's the, that's the call. And all these virtues are pointing to how Jesus fulfills all these virtues perfectly. Is Jesus not steadfast in his love towards us? Is, is he not self-controlled in all of his temptations as we see in the scriptures? Is Christ not a brother to us? Has he not made us sons and daughters and brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God? Has Christ not loved us perfectly? Proven over and over again, proven perfectly at the cross at Calvary when he died for us. 
So these things that Christ displays are the very things, these promises that we've inherited as his people. And these are the things, these promises that we've inherited are the very things we are to put into active work in our lives. I don't know how you are at golf, but you're not going to get any better at golf if you don't practice golf. It's just true. You can't go shoot in the 70s if you never play golf. If you're a baker, you're not going to grow in your baking if you don't practice, if you don't put the ingredients into uh, the meals that you're making. The Christian life is the very same thing. We have all these supplies, these graces, these ordinary means of grace that God has given us in the glorious gospel, and we are to put these things to practice. That means, beloved, we are to invest in our spiritual growth. Invest your life in the spiritual growth of your heart. Uh, If you find yourself investing in other things more than you're investing in your spiritual growth, you will not grow. You will not grow. It's a good good question to ask the soul. Take your soul to task today. What am I investing in more than I'm investing in my own godliness given to me by God's power? And that leads us to the third and final point. For if these things, these qualities are yours and are increasing, that's incredible. If these things are increasing, look at these four fruits that kind of come when we've believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are applying the gospel to our lives, we're tethered to the love of Jesus, Uh, look what happens in our life. There's two preventions that we're kept from, and then there's these two beautiful confirmations that we receive as well. Look at the first prevention there in verse 8. Prevents you from being unfruitful. And this is really, this is our application for today. The application is from the text. So if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So growing in Christian maturity keeps us from being ineffective and unfruitful. Surely no one in this room would like to be described as unfruitful. And and, and we have to recognize if he's bringing this in here, it is possible for us to then be ineffective or unfruitful. But he's saying if you cultivate these things and you rely on the grace and mercy of God, knowing that he's given you everything for life and godliness, he's given you these promises, and you will grow and you will bear fruit. Beloved, how will we serve Irving with the gospel? How will we plant churches? How will we send missionaries? How will we grow in our fathering or in our mothering or in our friendship one to another? How will we increase in our serving and in our generosity? How will we bear fruit? By pushing into the spiritual growth that is provided for us in Christlikeness and through the power of the gospel. And we do this through the knowledge of him. That's what it says right there. Unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We walk with him in intimacy. We we apply these things to our heart. And look at the second thing that is prevented. We avert forgetfulness. Look what it says in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities, 
So, for if these qualities are yours, all of those godly characteristics uh, listed, for if uh, these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective. And then verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Look what Peter says here. Whoever lacks the godly character and is increasing, is not increasing in this godly character, is the equivalent to a blind person who is so nearsighted that he has forgotten that he is, or he has forgotten what he has been cleansed of. It's like if you go to one of these stained glasses on the side of this sanctuary and you place your nose against it and you're just looking at where your nose uh, is touching the stained glass, you are unable to see and describe the beauty of that stained glass. It's what he's saying. It's the picture that he is painting. Some are so distracted with the things of life that are right in front of them that they cannot see the power of the gospel that we are called to remember that has cleansed you from former sins. You have been forgotten. You're, excuse me, you have forgotten what Christ has delivered you from. And, and here's what that means practically. We, we keep returning to the same sins that so easily entangle us because we have forgotten the former sins that we have been forgiven of because we have forgotten the very gospel that has saved us. We might at times remember that Christ died for us, but we remember so in a transactional way, recognizing that, yes, he's died and, and whatnot, but you have forgotten that he has cleansed you, cleansed you of your sins. And how? Because you have not made every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and, and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness um, with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So we believe the gospel and our heart is reminded of these truths and we apply these truths to our lives every day. It, it, the question is, is the gospel operating in your life every day? This is what we mean. Are you preaching the gospel to yourself every day? How do you avoid forgetfulness? Gospel-mindedness. That's how we avoid forgetfulness. So be mindful of these things. And third thing, look, look there what it says in verse 10. Confirms our calling and election. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I want us to look at that last statement there in verse 10. If you practice these things, you will never fall away from the faith. You will persevere. Now, we see in the scriptures that it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We see that in Philippians chapter 2. And we see in Philippians 1 that it is God who starts the work. And he completes the work. It's in Romans. It's in Ephesians. It's in 1 Peter 1 that we are elect by God before the foundation of the world. And those who are elect will be brought into the kingdom of God because God has the power to preserve us in this journey of exile. But I want us to see here, Peter is talking about the onus being on us. Uh, we have a responsibility to make every effort, as Peter says, to diligently confirm that you are a Christian, that you are in 
Christ. So yes, we are elected, but the proof of our election is whether or not our affections for God have been changed. You see that little word there, confirm? In the Greek, it's in the emphatic tense. And it means to ratify or to validate that you are a part of the elect. Uh, so our election is granted to us and then we validate it by saying we want to know this Christ who has saved us. We want to live out this, God, this godly life and demonstrate the character of the one who has saved us and cleansed us from all unrighteousness. So we celebrate, on one hand, the sovereignty of God over all things, and God is sovereign over everything in all of creation. And then on the other hand, we have a responsibility to recognize the duty of man in growing in this godliness because God has supplied us everything that pertains to life and godliness. His, he works uh, his grace in us, but he does not do it all for us. And we have to be okay with the tension of the scriptures. We have to, one of the commitments I made to the church when I came is to, to make sure that we preach the whole counsel of God, to tackle every single text uh, the way that it was intended to be written. And, and so we have to see that it's, it's both, and we'll, we'll get into that here in just a second. But the evidence of the sovereign grace that you have received and that, that you have trusted in is displayed in those who practice these qualities. That's what Peter is saying. He's aiming at our assurance here. So how do you know if you're counted among God's elect? That might be a question that you're wrestling with in your seat today. Pastor, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Look what it says there again in verse 10. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So how do you confirm your calling and election? By God's grace maturing in your life. By building up your faith, by practicing these virtues. That is our uh, responsibility in the text and in life. And what happens then if we're not doing this, if we're living a sinful life, our assurance goes away, does it not? We start thinking about uh, like a fear that we have in uh, whether or not we're saved. Uh, it's, it's like our assurance is just stripped away. If you're living a, a godly life or, or an ungodly life for a long period of time, I say this in love. You might not be a Christian. Because he's calling us here to make our calling and election sure. Not by our works but by trusting in daily of the work of Christ that drives us and motivates us to a holy living. I hope you have ears to hear that today because that's what Peter is calling the church to consider. But those who do, those who are in Christ, look at the final thing today. We are ensured internal provision. Verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. And the one who endures, grows in Christ's likeness, it's proof that they were all along drawn by God and recipients of the grace of God from eternity past. And it's in this way 
This is what he says right here. That there will be provided by God an entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will collectively worship him together in spirit and in truth. As we are doing now in the shadows of our life. We are to do it wholeheartedly, yes. But one day we will do it perfectly. Beloved, this kingdom is worth pursuing. So pursue it with all your heart. A couple of responses very quickly at the very end of our time. The first is this. Be careful not to presume on God's grace by simply being satisfied with being saved. There is nowhere in scripture that suggests we should presume on the grace of God if this command is given to us here in the scriptures and in other places, even referencing Colossians 1, as Kyle did, we are to grow up into maturity. This is the call of the Christian. Do not presume upon the grace of God. That means don't just say, I'm gonna live any way I want, and I'm not gonna worry about growing in godliness, and I'm just gonna trust that God's gonna forgive me. You cannot find that in this word. You cannot find it there. Number two, Exercise your God-given faith and strive for holiness. Beloved, it says in Ephesians 2 that even your faith has been granted to you. We talked about this last week. Exercise the faith. All tools have been given to you in the tool belt. Trust the Lord. Seek the Lord in these things. Exercise, strive for holiness, for out which no one will see God. That's what it says in the book of Hebrews. And then finally, number three, it's good for us, it's good for me, if I could be honest with you, to hold the tension regarding God's work in salvation and man's responsibility. Sometimes we teeter on one over the other. Now, God's sovereignty is always more powerful than God's responsibility, always. But man has responsibility. Spurgeon writes about this, he says, two truths will commence and these two truths. We find them as contradictions, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Uh, but, but I love what Spurgeon says, these two truths will commence near the throne of God, doth which all truth springs. They will intersect at the throne of God. Let's allow them to be friends. Uh, let's allow the power of God to drive us in the responsibility we see. Spurgeon said, he said, I cannot help but to see in Scripture that God is sovereign over the smallest thing. And I also can't help but to see in, in Scripture that man has responsibility to grow in faith and to be faithful with the gospel of Christ. God, help us to do this. My, my first question is uh, to the congregation today and those who are here, are you a Christian? H have, you, have you turned to Christ? Have you, have you placed your faith in this Jesus who is abundant in mercy? who is mighty in glory and who loves you profusely if you turn to him by faith. If you haven't, I would encourage you to turn to this Christ and everything for life and godliness will be granted to you today. And we get to encourage the church then to walk in these things all the days of our life. If you are a member of the church, if you are in Christ, if you have been saved, my prayer for you today would be that you would cultivate the Spirit's power in your life. 
I pray that you would abandon yourself in Bible study, that you would commit to it more than anything in this life, to, to know the scriptures of God, that you would be devout in your prayers, asking God for help, asking God to grow you in godliness with your eyes on Jesus as you're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Uh, this is his promise to you. This is the very great promises we talked about last week. Be here in worship, trusting, worshiping the living God. Be together in fellowship. This should drive us both in our worship of God. This, this beautiful gift of God's sovereignty and his, uh, our responsibility should drive us to worship the living God that has given us all the grace and mercy that we need in Christ Jesus. And so let's get to work as we've been called by God to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. For without it, we would be blind. Without it, we would be so nearsighted, Father, that we would be floundering in our sin. I pray that we would apply these things, not in our own earnings, but in great effort, knowing that you have accepted before us the full and complete work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you look at us as recipients of righteousness and grace and forgiveness of sins. So God, based on all these things, for this reason, would you help us supplement our faith and increase in these things? For we know those that do, there is a promise of an eternal kingdom. I pray that that would work itself out in the lives of our people today. Father, for those who need to repent, I pray that they would repent. Those who need to be renewed in their trust, I pray that they would be renewed in their trust of the gospel of the Lord Jesus today, God. Would you work and move and have your way amongst us as we respond? In Christ's name we pray, amen.